Namo tassa bhagavato arto samma samudasa Namo tassa bhagavato arto samma samudasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma samudasa For sake of all beings, wisdom, compassion, and non-clean awareness, I will awaken quickly for the sake of all beings. Good. Well, this is... um, I suspect you're going to enjoy this. uh, Enjoy, for sure, uh, this morning, because we're going to go deeper into the... uh, uh, teasing out the nature of illusion. Hmm? So to speak. I think quite fascinating. Do you have any, any, briefly, just any questions that are uh, surfacing that you'd like me to address? Or Yes. Um, I feel I'm a bit tangled in the intellectual. Is it okay to let that go, or should we keep grappling with it? Because I know it's pointing to something that's not exactly saying it, it seems to me. Yeah, it's funny, you know... um, what you grapple with intellectually one day can just disappear and was never a dif- an issue at all, difficulty. So, um, for instance, if we were to study the- uh, thoroughly something like the text of progressive stages of emptiness, people really grapple with those. That's This is, this is a bit toned down on that. But um, it's necessary to clarify things intellectually, so that you have a clear feeling of where you're going. At the same time, it's getting in the way, and you're saying, well, it's getting in the way of my calm mind. That needs to be looked at, because then you're clinging to the calm mind. But too much intellectualization is also not good, because there's just not a lot of clarity around it. So that's why I ask you, especially in the morning, could you please, do you have any questions? Because sometimes, you know, intellectual ideas are should be about describing things clearly. And if you can't understand it intellectually, I mean, by the way, intellectually it shouldn't be used as a bad term. Uh, if you can't understand it coherently for yourself, it's probably simply because you either haven't heard it in just the right words that you need it, or it's it's not being given in a clear way for, for your mind, right? So that's where I ask you to let me know if you have anything to clear it up. Because intellectual doesn't mean necessarily complicated or uh, far out. It it should be good good intellectual good intellectual ideas should clarify the mind, in my view, not complicate. But when you're introduced to something new and you need to, to use new terms and new words and new ideas, for the person that's being introduced to it, it can feel difficult. Yeah, But I'll tell you what, these, all these ideas, they're actually very simple. But that doesn't mean you're stupid. The, mo- the consciousness has to get used to being able to handle the material. Do you, do you all follow that? Oh, yeah. And that just takes time. So for those that were at the Abhidhamma retreat, for, for four months, did you find that some of the ideas in the first month were not easy to grapple with? Yeah. But later on, don't don't let me put words in your mouth. But <laughs> but later on, got easier to handle and easier to handle and easier to handle. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're complicated. It's just that if you're not used to working in that milieu, you can go, 
oh my God, it's almost frightening. It's like walking into a seminar on quantum mechanics. You go, yeah! But then after a while, I go, wow, this is actually straightforward. The ideas are straightforward. So sometimes it's time, and sometimes it's a matter of keep asking the question until you go, wait, wait a minute, now I've got it. Now I've got it. Okay, so please, if you have something you want to clarify, it could be that other people are grappling with the same thing, and if you say it, and I explain it in a way, it could be that you get it, or you get it, or you get it. Go, oh, okay, that wasn't so difficult. So clarifying intellectually is actually a good process because then it gives you a clear direction for contemplation. This has always been the scholar-yogi tradition, which is clarified intellectually, which can take anywhere from a day to weeks to months. That's an approach. Until you've got it clear in your mind where you're going, and contemplation and meditation is easier. If it's fuzzy when you go into meditation, it can produce fuzzy meditation. Others approach it by, you don't need all that stuff, just go and meditate. Different different styles. Different different styles. So then I do have a question. Mm-hmm, please. It, um, it, and back to the ordinary object and you saying we actually do, there is a self, and don't don't act like there isn't a self. So is the self somewhat similar that we have a self the way we have ordinary objects, and then everything is superimposed over top of? Yeah. But even the, or, even the ordinary objects uh, at a certain level um, don't, aren't, well, at a, at a real level, all ordinary objects are not the way they appear to us. That's just the way our organism is built to see within a certain range. But we are so conditioned to it, that's how we experience the world, therefore that's how things are. We, we know that's not true. And if, I, if you spent time with me, if we had a lab to, to play in, or you came and spent time with me on Galliano and, and we could go to some of the... We, I could very quickly, within a couple of weeks... I think you'd have a very different appreciation that how we experience the world has nothing to do very very much with the world. Very like a such a narrow range. In the same way as we'll see today, I don't know if we'll get that far uh, this morning, maybe this evening, is the self-experience uh, that we have that's so firm and real is actually a narrative story that our organism tells us so we can function, we can operate but it causes a tremendous amount of dukkha. You see? So it's not that it's not real. It's as real as reading a fictional story is real. It's a good Sherlock Holmes novel. That's about how real it is. Yeah. That's about it. That's about how transparent it is. But for the being who hasn't done the contemplation, done the study and the, the actual... Meditative research, it's very, very concrete, the self. And the world around them is very concrete. It's very, very fixed. See? See? So in one sense, it's very important not to fall into extreme view, which is there is no self. Hmm? Because there is a manifesting self. So this is... So usually we teach it by there is no self, then we reintegrate it. There is a relative self, 
but at the same time, it's an illusory fabrication. Hold the both together simultaneously. That's very difficult for beings to do. And that's actually higher teaching. Okay, so normally, it's much easier for the consciousness to go, there is no self. Thank you, I finally arrived. But then to introduce, well, no, there is. It's a relative self that, that operates really, but it's actually a fictional creation. Don't do that to me, please. Now you're now you're playing some intellectual game. No, actually, it's it's the reality of it. But to hold those two simultaneously in consciousness, freely moving between both, equally, well, that's that's much harder. Much much harder. But it's I'll tell you what it's very similar to putting your hand in water. Why is it that you can actually put your hand in water? and push it through water, but it's more difficult to do it through a piece of stone or concrete. That's exactly what it's like. Because there's times when you can't push your hand through water. When is it that you can't push your hand through water? When it's ice. When it's ice, but it's still water. Right? but we tell ourselves a fictional story, but it's ice. But it's still water. Same thing. Just change the state. It's possible that some people know how to change the state. I won't, I, this, is, this is not scientifically held, but it's possible that some people know the, 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 how to change the state of a rock and place their hand through a rock or the footprint in a rock and leave footprints in rocks. That's possible. It's not scientifically possible. Why? Not because any scientists would get mad at it. That's just say, you know, the hydrogen bonds and the way the bonds are in a rock are very different than in water. That's why you can push your hand through water and you can't push your hand easily through rock. But it doesn't necessarily mean that under the right physical circumstances, you couldn't. In the same way that Five, six years ago, it wasn't possible to make solid objects invisible. Now, more and more researchers around the world are publishing every week that they can make solid, real, so-called existing objects completely invisible to sight and to other means of detection, called cloaking. It's a hot field. Cloaking devices. The first three-dimensional big object has now been cloaked completely from all three dimensions, yeah. Completely. Small little things can be cloaked with um, light rays, but now they just did a big, big object and cloaked. Hot field, why? Military. And other reasons. Yeah, and all kinds of medical things. And it's, it's quite a hot field. It's very, very well funded. Why? Because it's not just military. It's all kinds of things. It's a huge area. So, but 10 years ago, people said, nonsense. Nonsense. You can't do that sort of stuff. Whole new crystals have been found, never before believed, even in the realms of physics. One of the Nobel, two, uh, uh, Linus Pauling, double Nobel Prize winner, said to one of his students, that's crap, because this guy proposed a whole new kind of crystal that exists in nature. Complete crap, you're just off base. Just won a Nobel Prize for finding uh, a whole new property of matter, just right in front of everybody's eyes, because he stuck to it when his... When his 
advisors said, you're, you're just dreaming, Mac. You're in fantasy land. Help a little bit? This is not so easy because this isn't intellectual. You have to use the intellectual route. No, let's use, let's, intellectuals developed a bad name, right? It's not true. Good intellect is clear thinking, not complicated. <coughs> it's very important to, to readdress the word intellect. A good intellect is clear, clear, lucid, loving. Over-intellectualization is complicated, obscuring, and a fuzzy mind. Good, clear intellect is used as a device to come to good experience. So please uh, uphold that a, that a good intellect is a very worthy thing. And certainly in the East, in the tradition of Buddha Dharma, a good, clear intellect is considered a jewel. And all you have to do is study with someone like the Dalai Lama to know the beautiful combination between high intellect, highly trained mind of extraordinary intellect and love and compassion. This is, this is, this is the art to, to bring them together. It's always been in the East considered one of the highest attainments you can have is to bring the intellect and uh, love and compassion together and wisdom into a seamless whole. So that's why we use the intellect. Not because it's complicated, just because it helps lead to profound wisdom experience and liberation. Mm-hmm. Any, any others? Any other clarifications? That's closer, isn't it? I'm not so sure about that, Nuno. I'm, I can see what you're saying, but I'm not so sure that's true. I think there's some people that psychologically relate to objects more and consider that more dependable than events. I, I, I can see there's a certain psychological type where the objects become much more prominent and much more determined in their life than, than events. I think that's just my experience, but I think that some people are much. If this is what you mean, some people are much more concrete with events, and some people are much more concrete and fixed with objects. Well, my, my experience, I feel the object is apparently more easy to determine. It feels more concrete, but an event involves more factors: the factors of time, the factors of interrelationship. I think for you, I think for you, but I I believe for others, it's the other way around. I I know beings that where events and time and space is very muddy and difficult for them, whereas objects are very clear. 
know, would, yeah, it's just my experience uh, with, with uh, people. Different styles, different cognitive styles for different people. And you see this a lot. Some people are very object-driven. Everything's, everything's firm with objects. Very difficult with time and space and events. Whereas it can be the other way around. Any, any others there? Just just brief, because there's so much in this next section. I keep saying that. You don't have to look at it and go, ah, I'll get through it in a very quick time. And <laughs> you have to cut me down on the story. So, okay, that's it. Give me a... <laughs> okay, only two minutes for a story, not going for five. I like the stories, though. Any others? So that may be true. I'd have to look at that, Nino. But I think it has to do with cognitive style. Cognitive style. keeps coming up. You know, it's funny, we look at people and we live in a world where we think, we assume that brains are wired very similar. But the range of possibilities of how to experience the world from people who look relatively the same is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Isn't that fun to see? Or sometimes not? How different a person seeing the world, even above, even to do with a certain story or something that happens, especially in a relationship? Why did you say that? Well, because, but it's not like that. Oh, yes, it is. Seeing the world very, very differently, and yet the human being apparently is built very similarly. Not at all. How about this? You know, you can tell you can tell a book by its cover. No, you can't. You cannot tell a book by its cover. But the the cover does tell you things about the book. But this book, called A Human Consciousness, and the way it's built, is a really complex book. And it's, and it's, permuta- it's, it's, its ability to throw anything up and see the universe in any way is extraordinary. It really is mind-boggling. It's really amazing. Coming for perhaps perhaps coming for dharma tea, but more likely food and affection. Okay, any others? Okay, let's let's enter into the city of the Gandharvas. Gandharvas spelled G-A-N-D G-A-N-D-H-A-R-V-A-S. This is a godlike realm. It's a, a demigod, semi-god realm. Gandharvas in Sanskrit. When the sun rises over the plains of India and its rays illuminate the tips of clouds near the horizon, sometimes a strange sight can be seen. The great treatise on the perfection of wisdom tells us that in the sky, quote, one sees a city with rooms on the lofty tops of buildings and royal palaces and moving people who go about in them. As the sun rises higher, the city fades away. It is nothing but a trick of light devoid of reality. So like a, a, a cloud mirage. Yeah. This has been seen many times, these beautiful palaces in the sky of gods moving around up in the clouds, and people see these. And, yeah. But it is a trick of light devoid of reality. This is what one calls the city of the Gandharvas. This is a text. This is this is a quote from an ancient text uh, on wisdom. Those humans who have never seen it 
and who, who discover it one morning when looking eastwards, believe it is real and quickly walk towards it. But the closer they get, the quicker it fades, and once the sun has reached a certain height, it completely disappears. The city of Gandharvas is not a real city. It is only human thinking which makes it so. Yeah. Have you heard this again and again during this retreat? Over and over? Yeah. Human thinking makes it so. Human make, but Okay, let's go deeper. Let's take this and go, okay, what does that illustration of illusion, where, where, what can we do with that? What's it really pointing to? Let's talk about the Gandharvas for a moment. So, okay, so that city of illusion up in the clouds is an illusion, right? Different than the way we are, correct? Different than the way we are in a city or when we go to the parliament buildings or we go to a, the palace of the Habsburgs. That's kind of real. But the one in the sky is a fiction, correct? Okay. Let's talk about the Gandharvas. The Gandharvas who inhabit this marvelous city in the clouds, which is called uh, Vismapana, which translates as the astounding one, are a refined race of mythical creatures. In Tibet, they are called Driza, which literally translate as scent eaters. They rely on scent. This is why we, uh, during um, rituals or ceremonies, uh, tantric ceremonies, we light incense. True. We make, we put out beautiful food. Why? Because there are classes of energy beings, demigods and so on, and other kinds of creatures that we can't see visually that get attracted to sense. So when you do these ceremonies and ring bells and so on, you're attracting creatures that are more scent-based and sound-based than visually based. And because we are so strong with our eyes, these beings would pass right before us and we don't even see them. Some beings do, but not many. Uh, the only nourishment for these demigods is, is scent. They live off scent. We live off food. They live off scent. The Gandavaras are renowned as heavenly musicians, which is why their king, Dhritarashtra, whom the Buddhists regard as one of the guardians of the four directions of the world, is always depicted as playing a lute. This is also sometimes where, uh, it's more of a pure land where Sarasvati uh, is, in the western pure land, or southern pure land. They frequently leave their city to attend the god Indra, which is a higher god. They play they play for the higher god Indra. So, you know, complete world systems all worked out in terms of who's who in the zoo. Entertain the divine company with songs and music. The vast city of Vis, Vismampana is pleasantly free from overcrowding. So ideal. As the Arthvarda the Arth, the Arvada Veda informs us, there are only six thousand three hundred and thirty-three Gandvaras altogether. They know the exact amount. Always seems to stay the same. Six thousand three hundred and thirty-three Gandvaras. That's all there is, and they don't have a city, uh, a palace, and city from overcrowding. It's pretty good. They're also known for their. I'm not going to go into this because there's a, lot, a lengthy section here on their interest in women. Gandvaras have this um, ability, especially with earthly women, to consort with earthly women. It's so much so that in Indian tradition, uh, in, in traditional Indian marriage, when the man and the wife uh, 
get together into their marriage bed for the first night, first three nights, a stick is placed wrapped with cloth with scent on it between the, the two couples to attract the Ganvaran who's really mating with the bride. Interesting. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's a rod, a rod of Undumbara wood wrapped in cloth, anointed with perfume to attract the Ganvara to the marriage bed because she's really, uh, the, the bride is really mating with the god. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Anyways, I can go on about this. But, uh, the city of the Ganvaras is interesting as an example of illusion in more than one way. On the one hand, its appearance as a city in the clouds is rather picturesque, is a rather picturesque example of mistaken perception. Well, we all agree that when we see a cloud in the sky, we imagine that there are celestial musicians and beautiful uh, beings up there and so on. That's a uh, it's mistaken identity, yes? Mistaken perception. So projection, yes? We would normally do that. The edges of low clouds are illuminated by the rays of the rising sun and are mistaken for the skyline of a fantastic gold-colored city. Have you seen people do this sort of thing? I have. Look at that tree. Yes, it is the palace of Tara. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, oh my God, look at that lake. It is a celestial realm of the Mayan gods. It, whatever it is, right? You go, oh, really? See? So, on the other hand, this city is noteworthy as an entirely imaginary place that together with its inhabitants exists only in the human mind and its products, such as tales, poems, or pictures. Would you agree? Myths and stories. And even the, the text of the Prajnaparamita points out that, these, that this experience is what? Projection, correct? Okay. The objects, and I'm going to underline, I've underlined here, the objects created by fiction, are a particularly interesting case of illusory objects. Now you think, okay, we've been over that. Fiction, projection, objects that really aren't there, and so on. We're pretty familiar now. Let's let's carry on how this works, because it's very profound. Even though it is surprisingly difficult to say what exactly fictional objects are, it is clear that they are often taken to be something that they are not an essential characteristic of an illusory phenomenon. Can you give examples of that? Have you ever read a book, a fictional book, Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Sherlock Holmes? How many people have read a book where you've been completely lost in it? The Ring Story, Tolkien? Yes? Whole world system that you'd like to be in? Um, Narnia series? As a child, Narnia? Going to the world of Narnia? Yes? Totally believable. I used to um, make out of cardboard boxes uh, Apollo Space Command modules as a child. And <laughs> go, go out into space and come back with dials and everything. You see? Totally imaginary spacecraft. Uh, I guess other people had dollhouses and so on. But, but I'd go and make uh, Apollo Command modules and get inside them, put on a spacesuit. You see? And that led to 
building aqua scuba gear in the bathtub, and then eventually trying uh, engineered scuba gear in a swim pool, which is good for about three or four minutes until the bottle ran out of air. <laughs> Pretty cool. See? But imaginary. Sea Hunt. That all came from Sea Hunt. You watch Sea Hunt? Yeah, Sea Hunt. You watch the Sea Hunt every week. And of course, what do you do as a kid? Well, we make scuba gear. Yeah. So you're all familiar with uh, the, ex- the essential characteristic of fiction is to bring you into a world that doesn't exist, but you inhabit it. And today we have people playing computer games, yes? And not emerging for days. Not eating days and days and days immersed in a world uh, that's created by software. Quite something, eh? Okay. One may want to argue that it is misleading to assert that we can say anything true about all fictional objects. This is so, it is claimed, because when we make an assertion, when we make a statement, when we make a claim about a real object, We speak about the properties it has in our world. But in the case of fictional objects, we only ever speak of them in the fiction. The gods of the Gandharas, the story of Sherlock... He he likes Sherlock Holmes. There's lots of Sherlock Holmes in here. The story of Sherlock Holmes. His Sherlock Holmes pipe is not a real pipe. It's a fictional pipe, correct? But the pipe that we're holding is a real pipe, yes? Because others can see it. Would you all agree? <coughs> the rock wall in Sher- or the brick wall in Sherlock Holmes is a fictional wall, no matter how well it's described. But the wall that we're seeing in our home, this brick, is not fictional, correct? You can't go. Get, gotta go along because you're too sophisticated. But you're supposed to go along with this. Yes, that's right. That's a real world, and the obviously in Sherlock Holmes is a fictional world, right? And we know, right? And when we're watching a movie. We know that the brick wall in the movie is a fic... This is where it gets slippery, isn't it? We know it's a fictional wall, correct? And the brick wall that we have at home is a real wall. Some of you are shaking your head and going, it's getting kind of slippery, isn't it? Pretty slippery, isn't it? And what would happen if you're in the movie for six or seven or eight hours or ten hours? Or you're kept in the movie for 24 hours. Okay, let's carry on. We need to build a case for fictional and non-fictional for the moment. This is how it's all done, yes. It's like a legal case, and then you just kind of dismantle it. So when we say that it is true that there are 6,333 inhabitants of the city of the Gandharas, what we really mean is that the Athvara Veda asserts that there are just so many. It's an assertion. Do you hear the, the, the difference? In a fiction, you have an assertion, and therefore it's only an assertion from the point of view of what you're told. That's called fiction. But we do we do that with each other all the time? We make assertions. My gosh, that coffee's good. My goodness, isn't that a beautiful home? My goodness, that flower is so delightful. Assertion. But we take it for what? Real. Anyways, we're not supposed to do that right now. So we do not actually say anything about an object at all. All we do is speak about statements 
that are made in a specific body of texts. Isn't that cool? I, li- I really like this. This is important. All these things are in fiction, whether it's movies or computers or books or DVD, you know, whatever it is, is what? An assertion of fiction. Correct? Okay. But this overlook, well, let's see here. I think I'll skip that. We might it, get, it can get quite difficult because his argument is, is good. He's really going to go into the argument of which text do we mean? Were the text before the text written afterwards? So he's really. But we I, I don't think we need to do that. We might therefore think that it is more satisfactory to treat fictional objects as theoretical entities. That is, if it's in a book, if it's from a computer, if it's in a movie, then it's a theoretical entity. Whereas what we normally inhabit is a real entity. Atoms are one type of theoretical entity that physics discuss. They are no more reducible to what all physics have written about than than theoretical entities that literary critics discuss and are reducible to what a bunch of authors wrote about them. This This view seems to make more sense, but it commits us to ascribing rather strange properties to fictional objects. We all agree that there are some questions about fictional objects that do not have an answer. Give an example. Did Sherlock Holmes have an ant in Leamington Spa? None of the stories say that he did or he did not. Now, someone's gone a lot to a lot of work to make sure that all the Sherlock Holmes stories, that they don't know where the ant really lived. Yes? So, did so. None of the stories say that he did or he did not. Are there buildings in the city of Gandhara's taller than 300 feet? Unfortunately, none of the sources in Indian mythology go into that much detail. He actually had to probably look that up and check that out. You see? So there's limits to the fiction. Isn't that what we do often? And that's how we stay safe with fiction. There's limits to the buildings. There's limits to the fictional characters. There's limits to the objects within fiction. And that's why it's not real. Ho, ho, ho. Fictional objects are therefore distinguished from other entities, both from theoretical ones like atoms, as well as from non-theoretical ones like tables and chairs, by being incomplete. So we say that fiction is not so satisfactory because it's incomplete. Have you had this experience in reading a book and you're really into the book? And you go, oh, I'd like to know more about the character. It feels incomplete. I'd like to, but, but in a really good novel, the character is fairly complete and you're sucked into the story. And for a really great author, they don't need to use a lot of words. And you have a complete picture of the character. It's fantastic. Eh? I, I think it's marvelous. It's one of the beautiful things about I, I like about Le Carre's um, novels is he he's so economical with the use of words in describing characters, like the, the spy who came in from the cold, or the honorable schoolboy, or Smiley's people, and the way the characters are sketched out, you can see them, you can feel them, you can smell them. 
But if you go back a paragraph, you realize, he didn't say anything. It's brilliant. brilliant. But would you say that's only true for fictional books and movies? Would you? Would you? I need you to fall into the trap. <laughs> would you say uh, only for movies? Would you say only for books? Would you say only for uh, works of fiction? Yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Good student. Good student. So it, it's incomplete. It's not quite satisfactory. It, the, the book must be three or 4,000 pages long for it to feel really satisfactory. For, and, and then one, one volume after another volume in the trilogy. You know the trilogy? And then it goes on and on and on. For every ordinary object, if we take any statement about it, it is either true or false. Even for practical reasons, we could never find out whether it's true or false. But normally we do that, right? True or false with real things? It's, it's a cup or not a cup, right? You look at the cup? No, the, tu- the cup is actually a bell. Come on, Mark. That's not true. It's a cup. True or false? True. True, it's a cup. And we do that, right? It's over with. Not fiction. But for fictional objects, this is not the case. They have holes. They have discrepancies. There are aspects of them that remain indeterminate and not so comfortable. So we can pop out of fiction. But we don't necessarily pop out of so-called reality. And then he goes on to a very good example with with, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, where fictional objects are contradictory because uh, Conan Doyle makes, in the story of Sherlock Holmes, things that are highly contradictory and objects don't appear, right, what they appear to be. Then he goes into a uh, fairly lengthy, it's good, a couple of pages, of describing the Tibetan world of Bayul, imaginary places. Places that are imaginary yet real, but can only be seen with beings that have the right mindset, the right karmic bent of the mind, whereas others only experience them as ordinary, called Bayul. And they're all littered all over Tibet. You know, you've heard Shambhala, the word Shambhala? Shambhala is a Bayul. And only people with the right merit uh, and, and, and a very high attainment can visit Shambhala. There was, I think it was Sonam telling us recently in India that uh, one teacher was going to visit, but he had, he had um, was away. A very famous, he's about he's in his 80s, Kamtor Rinpoche, very, very, very famous, um, uh, highly attained being, uh, was really close. He, he came very close to entering the the Bayol of Shambhala, not quite, okay. and and also of um, Pemako. So he describes, you know, the book Lost Horizon, and he describes various Bayols and so on, and the tradition of the Kala Chakra, which is the uh, the only the only true existing full text of the Kala Chakra still exists in Shambhala. It's true. True, according to, to um, um, beings that, that know these things, but all the other texts of Shambhala, uh, all the other texts of Kala Chakra are part texts of the full exposition of the Kala Chakra Tantra exists in Shambhala. 
So are these hidden worlds real or fictional? If you were to go into them and travel into them and live in them, would they be fictional? No. Okay. So now I'll just carry on a little bit. And he says, well, let's talk about the Baals again. Uh, most of the Baals are described in a kind of text called a Lamyeg or Niyeg. These are specific texts which are like tour guides. You know, we have our tour guides. Um, what is it? Lonely Planet? What's some of the other ones? Four Door? Yeah, some of the, yeah. And we use these to travel through a land that's not so familiar to us, right? But you see, in Tibetan culture, they have these guides that are both real landmarks, places you can go and visit, but then all of a sudden we have rivers where there's fish with human heads and dragons and bikinis playing music and visiting and so on, all blended together. The term neyig literally means, quote, itinerary to the way or itinerary to the place. These these itineraries are guidebooks to the hidden lands. At one level, they read like ordinary guidebooks to a pilgrimage place. In other words, you read it and you go, oh, good, I can now go on a pilgrimage in Tibet. But then all of a sudden, you're in another world. That isn't so common. They describe familiar landmarks and so on, and the sights seen along the way, and they, invest on, they advise on the best way of planning one's journey. By the way, he doesn't really describe where these come from, but the Bayols, or the, the um, Neigs, are, are almost always out of Revelation texts that were buried or hidden by uh, the consort of Padmasambhava in the 8th century by Yashishogal that are revealed by yogis, or they're come up as guidebooks in yogi visions and get written down, and people use them as guides to go into these, or the yogi uses them then from the dream or the vision to go into these hidden worlds. Pointing out hazardous gorges, treacherous rivers, or dangerous passes. On the other hand, they are also suffused with mystical imagination, describing dakinis. Do you know, all know what dakinis are? The word dakini is a Sanskrit for a space-going traveler, a female, enlightened, semi-enlightened, demonic, anywhere from demonic, tri- uh, trickster, semi-god, to a fully enlightened female awakened being. Uh, that is that has the ability to travel through space and time. Female embodiments of the Buddha's mind, dancing in the sky, malicious demons, guarding the hidden realm by producing illusions and miracles. Winged lions, serpents with jaws the size of houses, walls made of crystal, rocks engraved with auspicious symbols and texts, uh, and so on, and trees that give teaching and leaves with texts, and uh, um, rivers that you can drink from and be immortal, uh, infinite amounts of clothing, radiant orbs of light, lotuses that give off um, um, slash of things, uh, areas where you can sit and your realization goes faster than anything you can do in a real in a regular area. Here's a short excerpt from such a guidebook. Beyond Menako, he will come to the river Satvaloktana, 
which flows from east to west with great turbulence and is extremely difficult to cross. It has fish of many colors with the faces of humans, tigers, lions, panthers, cows, monkeys, parrots, and other creatures. Along the way, the seeker will pass many springs, some of them poisonous, that issue from mountains filled with heaps of gold, silver, copper, iron, and other metals. Passing beyond these springs, a seeker will come to five mountains covered with lovely flowers, trees, and jewels. Fabulous beings, both male and female, live happily there, playing with beautiful objects. They will sing enticing songs and make beautiful music to seduce the seeker. If that fails to to hide the hidden land, they will change into frightening forms and threaten him with terrifying sounds, or else they will produce various kinds of dismal smoke to make him sad and depressed. So it's very rare that a being has the the strength of mind and realization to enter these hidden magical lands, because before you get there, you will encounter what? An earthquake, a landslide, a mudslide, torrential uh, um, stream that takes your boat away or destroys the bridge. as many stories go, a seductress who comes along and you live happily ever after in a village and never make it into the uh, Bayol, a band of bandits come down and descend on you and steal all your goods and you have to turn back, uh, pouring rains and thunder and lightning and you just never make it, right? Or impenetrable forest, right? Of the, of the one that Ian Baker describes, right? Of, of bamboo thickets that are so thick and gnats and bugs and poisonous snakes that you just give up. You just actually have to cut through bamboo so thick you can't walk through it. It goes mile after mile after mile after mile. You can't get through. Okay, get the idea? Okay, good. In order to understand the Buddhist conception of hidden lands and of fictional places like the city of the Gandharas, from ancient India. More specifically, it is essential to note that in the Tibetan tradition, the world is not regarded as a kind of prefabricated container. Now, the word that, he doesn't bring this up, but the word that's used for container of worlds in the Tantric text is called vessel, vessels. So the world is not described as a world, it's described as vessels. So normally we conceive of the world as a prefabricated world of rocks and trees and mountains and streams and lakes and oceans, right? That we inhabit, correct? But that's not the conception by um, uh, traditionally in India and Tibet. It's vessels with many multiple layers of reality, not of one reality. The world is not regarded as a kind of prefabricated container in which human beings are placed and lead their lives. On the contrary, and this is also, I think, with what Mayan experience in uh, um, Australian Aboriginal experience uh, in the dream worlds, many, many beings in, in the world don't consider the normal reality. It's only one type of world that can be inhabited or experienced. On the contrary, it's something brought about collectively by a group of beings 
independent on their specific karma. This is very important. So this is the important point for today. I'll read that again and I want to give many examples of how profound this illusory world that he's that, that's being brought about called the city, the the, um, il- the illusion of the city of Gandharas is really talking about. On the contrary, it is something brought about collectively by a group of beings in dependence on their specific karma. This is profound, and this is why it's brought up in the Indian and Tibetan tantric tradition, Mahayana tradition, as worthy of contemplation. Now let's look into hell realms. Hell realms in the Buddhist tradition are not permanent realms, even though there's some that go on for a very long time. In the normal way of discussing hell realms and god realms and realms in which beings inhabit and where you can be reborn, to common folk, the real. But among the, the yogi scholars and attained beings, they're not. They're just imaginary places. For instance, in Vasubandha's 20 verses, composed in the 4th century, he was a great um, scholar yogi, he discusses the status of the guardians of the Buddhist hell realms. These guardians inflict terrible torments on their unfortunate beings reborn in hell, boiling them in molten metal. Have you heard these before? Oh, they're bad. They're bad. Now, if I was a normal, traditional, really traditional Tibetan Lama, I would normally give you three or four days discourse on all the Tibetan hells and how you don't want to go there. So you don't want to commit bad things in this life because you could end up in those hells. And I'll tell you, the descriptions are really bad. Being burnt in over and over again, being burnt in molten... Does this sound familiar to the Christian hells? Burnt over and over again in molten oil and molten metal over and over and over again for thousands of years. Things like that. Tearing out their tongues and pulling them on shrubs with thorns, sharp as razor blades, and so on. Everything that you can imagine is terrible here is there. Right? The worst. According to the Buddhist view, the hell beings experience the suffering as a consequence of the non virtuous deeds, yes, done by them in previous lives. But the status of their tormentors is somewhat puzzling because you see their tormentors are causing are creating really bad karma they should in turn create terrible karma for themselves by inflicting all the suffering on the hell beings this is not something that's brought out in the texts how they get around this little bit of mischief is what happens to the beings that create torment for those beings in hell because that's far worse and so forth while not straightforwardly contradictory, this view is certainly very uneconomical and not discussed. Okay. Now, Vasubandhu, writing in the 4th century, evades this problem by this way. He denies that the guardians are real beings at all. In other words, the beings that guard and torment these poor, unvirtuous beings that have been reborn in the hell realms... How do you get around this problem of boiling people alive? They don't exist. This is very cool. This is very, very neat. Okay? 
they don't actually exist. Why? Because the beings in hell are imagining they're in hell. These, together with the landscapes of hell, its burning mountains, its icy deserts, its lakes of fire and forests of thorns, are projections by a group of beings, by a group of beings. It's a hell of projected group mind with a particular kind of mindset that's so strong that they collectively dream a world of hell together. Sound familiar? Because the hell beings perpetrated evil deeds, its mind is now shaped in such a way that it creates these hellish circumstances. It's very important, Dharma. Rather than thinking of beings being thrown into hell, it makes more sense to regard them as creating their own hellish world dependent on of the deeds they have done in the past. Can you think about beings today, so-called living in this normal world, who live tormented every day in hell? What do we usually call them? Depressed. Hmm? Depressed. Depressed, yes. Any others? Depressed, true. Hmm? <laughs> Very, I had my head turned the other way. What was that? Politicians. Politicians. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, Barry, it's not, I, I have, I've known friends and colleagues who've been politicians who have done nothing in their lives but strive for the betterment of people. So, this is too bad today uh, that people take such a cynical view towards politicians. I have known politicians uh, in my community, I knew them personally, who devoted all their waking days um, to people's betterment. Not easy. Not easy lives. And there's still some today. So we must be careful about that. Uh, any others? Sociopaths. Sociopaths. But that can, that can vary. That can go back and forth, right? A sociopath can be actually quite normal at one moment and appear very normal and very erudite and very calm and clear and, and the next, but, but be doing terrible things, yes? But mostly more the schizophrenic, yes? The full-blown schizophrenic. Tormented. Tormented, 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 yes? So yes, right? Some sociopaths, some uh, schizophrenics, paranoid schizophrenics, depressed people, yeah? Depressed individuals. Uh, Some politicians, Barry, correct? Warlords, things. Absolutely living in a total hell realm all day long. Yes? This view also allows us to make sense of the guidebooks to the Tibetan hidden lands, the Bayul. They are guidebooks insofar as a group following them will reach these lands. There are people that can get to go to Pemaco. That's on the Indian-Tibetan border today. If you work really hard and you're a good trekker and a good pilgrim, you can get into Pemaco. It's a harder after 1950, after a major earthquake, because all the trails got destroyed and one of the biggest recorded earthquakes in the world in 8.5 on the Richter scale. So the trails are gone. But there's still people that get through. Not many. So you can visit there. But, but, 
But there are no ordinary guidebooks because one will not see the hidden lands without the right kind of mind. So even some very, very highly practiced lamas have gone to Pemako and have died in trying and have led whole pilgrimages to the death and others have seen it. As a certain kind of mind needs to be had to perceive the, the torments of hell, the treasures of the hidden land are similarly brought about by the minds of the people setting out to find them. Do you follow? Have you ever had this experience? Have gone to a place and for someone the place is ugly and bad, for another it was marvelous. So I'm going to now, shall I give you a story? I'll keep it quick. 19, maybe 1982, 1980, I think 1982. I went on a trip uh, with Nam Rinpoche and other students down the west coast of Africa by freighter, Polish Ocean Lines. It's three months. And one of the places we visited was the port of Dakar. We went in, we would do daily trips during the day into Dakar and explore while the ship was taking on freight. And the boat was tied up to the to the dock, and we were told by the um, personnel on the ship, "Do not go out at night; it's very dangerous. Don't just don't do it. Don't even walk on the dock at night. It's very well. The rats you can see the rats were like no exaggeration; they're huge, like dogs walking around. But don't go out; you'll get mugged for sure. Okay." So go down the coast of Africa, interesting, marvelous things to see and do, and it was a wonderful time. Come back to Canada, and I come back to Vancouver, and I'm in Vancouver giving a Dharma class. I can remember it very clearly. In Vancouver, giving a Dharma class, being sitting there, and right there, right, right where you are, there was a young man. And I'm describing some things about West Africa. Dakar, I mentioned the word Dakar a number of times because some interesting things happened in Dakar. We saw some interesting things going down the coast. And every time I would say West Africa or Dakar or something like that, the person would go, I could see them, you know, they have the body flinches, it gets tight, it, it does numbers, especially the teacher, you know, body language indicates so you're full of crap. So I, so I, I milked a little more, you know, sp- spend more time talking about West Africa, as I would do, because I see this person is very uncomfortable over there doing things. And then afterwards, I said, "Come here, after class, so, what's what's with West Africa?" He says, "Oh, it's a shithole." Pardon my language on the, it's a shithole. All of West Africa, crappy place. So why? Well, especially Dakar, he says. I said, "What's wrong with Dakar?" So I go, something really deep in here. I knew something. You know. So tell me more. Tell me more. Where did you go? We talked. You know, very socially. I never met the person before. Why was all of West Africa a hellhole? Because he got mugged on the dock of Dakar at night. And you know what he said to me? Nobody, he was not on the boat. He, was, he had visited Dakar. And people said, don't go wandering around at night. 20-something-year-old, what would he do? Nobody can tell me what I should do or where I should go or not. Of course I should be able to walk around at night. So he gets mugged. What happens to all of West Africa? 
he gets mugged and beaten. What happens to all of West Africa? That was the look he gave If you get mugged, which happened, happened to someone I know, three times in the same elevator in New York in a hotel, three times is New York a hellhole. Three times. I know of a lady who's a, who's a colleague of mine. I'm trying to remember the exact number. I believe her car in Vancouver was broken into and things stolen 12 separate times. Does that make Vancouver a hellish place? A thieving place of bandits and roving brigands. Does it? Terry, would you say? All the Vancouver is a place of roving brigands and thieves. Well, not West Vancouver. Not West Vancouver, of course. <laughs> but just Vancouver. Yeah. Get, get the idea? Pardon? Pardon? Yes. Yes? Oh, yes. Oh, it's microphone buried. Do I have to do that? No. <laughs> Are you getting the getting some of the picture here? One incident tainted. Hell. One incident tainted. I walk over to West Vancouver. I have a marvelous coffee at Crema. Go visit Terry's house. God realm. <laughs> God realm. Look over the beautiful twinkling, you know, out of out of your living room, the twinkling lights of Vancouver. Beautiful. God realm, right? But then I walk down through West, and someone hits me. I fall over, and I get bumped. All of a sudden, West Van, dangerous, <laughs> dangerous place, West Van. Highest crime rate in all of Canada, I think. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, let's carry, let's carry on here. Coming back to the example of the illusory city of the Gandharvas, we realize that fictional places can be fruitfully regarded as collective projections. Fictional places can be fruitfully regarded as what? Collective projections. Why? If the Sherlock Holmes novels were written and were left on Conan Doyle's shelf, hmm. is it a collective fiction or just in his mind? Just in his mind. Mm-hmm. Once it gets launched, it becomes collective fiction. Do you see? And movies get created, and blogs, I'm sure. I suspect there's blogs about, uh, there's, there's commentaries, there's stories, there's scholars, there's university court, all these kinds of things, yes? So it becomes part of the collective fiction, not just something in text. Are you getting the idea? That is collective, you know what the word karma means, by the way. I hope you know technically what it means. It means action only. That's only what the word means. Car. Ma, mothering, uh, giving birth to car, which means activity. That's where our root C-A-R comes from uh, in the Indo-European languages, which is chariot. C-A-R, chariot, to move about, to be taken about on some platform. So the car, our word car, which is a vehicle, is the same thing. But it's, it means simply 
activity. The resultant is called wapaka, which is a resultant of the activity. That's all. It doesn't mean fate. Never did. That's just common, especially Western and Eastern view, but it doesn't mean that. It simply means the uh, intentional states of mind build experience, build a world, okay, or destroy a world, or destroy experience. What creates the world of Sherlock Holmes is not the fact that the text of the stories has been written and, and now exists somewhere, but that people read these stories. It takes, this is very, so I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing things. You have to read the story, and the more people, are you getting what's happening here? Is it landing? The more people that read the story, the more the, the collective fiction builds. If only one person reads the story, it doesn't travel like a virus, in fact. It stays stationary. People go, oh yeah, it's just a story. But once it enters into the collective, oh, how about this movie? What was the movie recently? Um, I think it was Steven Spielberg, where they had a camp on another planet. Does anybody know the name? A camp on another planet, and then they went and destroyed these beings on the planet? What was that? Is it right? hmm? Avatar. Avatar, yes, Avatar. Did you read uh, and hear, and I, I, people told me about people in New Zealand, because we saw it in New Zealand, who were depressed, now actually going to therapists, depressed, because Avatar as a movie stopped. They were so taken in by the movie into a world of, of, of Avatar that they wanted to stay in that world, and the movie ended, and they got depressed and actually had to go to therapists. And there's a lot of people supposedly that that movie was so powerful for them, they actually had to go for therapy because they they just wanted to go see it again and again to stay in the world. Collective what? Collective fiction. Like Trekkies? Like Trekkies. <laughs> or unhealthy Trekkies. <laughs> Not just unhealthy Trekkies. Some Trekkies do it as a, for fun, but unhealthy Trekkies. Those lost in... Um, Star Trek. Those lost in the good bygone days of American space program, when people went to the moon and America was all powerful. There's people that still lament that and go, we should be going to the moon again. Can you imagine? We should be going to the moon again because that's a symbol of the United States as being powerful. And right now we have a presidential candidate for the Republican Party saying we should be going to the moon and colonizing the moon. Whereas what's, pro what's President Obama proposing? A scientific expedition to a comet to discover new things and eventually get to Mars. But what did Bush get onto and what is another candidate getting onto? Let's repeat the same thing as a symbol that we are powerful, especially before the Chinese do because the Chinese have just announced they're going to go uh, to the moon and maybe start a colony in the moon, so now we have to do them. This is just madness, eh? collective madness, collective madness. <laughs> okay, P 
People write about these stories, they read these stories, they talk about them, they illustrate them, they think about them, they try to fill in the gaps in these stories, they write biographies of Holmes and Watson, they create movies, they edit the Baker Street Journal, which is a fictional journal, I mean, just a, fi a journal created, right? And so forth. If Conan Doyle's stories were kept only safe, well, I've, I've already described that. So imagine, eh? Sherlock Holmes becomes real for people, mm -hmm. as real as any. And you see letters. He's got a letter in here from, from the, um, the Prince of Wales. I think it's inviting Sherlock Holmes to come to the Sherlock Holmes Museum or something. Or no, the, no, it's the other way around. The Sherlock Holmes Museum, this is from the Prince of Wales. Thank you for a letter dated the 4th of July. 1994, in which you in kindly invite the Prince of Wales to visit the Sherlock Holmes Museum on behalf of Sherlock Holmes. This is how deep the fiction is in the British psyche. That the letter had to come from the secretary of Sherlock Holmes to the Prince of Wales. I just let you know how deep Sherlock Holmes is in the psyche of the Brits. We may now conclude We may now conclude that what is illusory about the city of the Gandharvas is that we regard a fictionally projected city as a real one. Or, and this seems more in keeping with the discussion just presented, we may conclude that the real illusion, the real illusion, is to think that our world is so very different from the fictional city of the Ganvaras. And now you should be going, ah, 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 that's not true. We know that when we see a cloud and we mistake palaces in the cloud, that's fictional, correct? But this, this world is real, correct? Yeah, I've got to play along a bit. Too sophisticated. Okay. Our world, like a fictional place, may be a collective projection too even if it's one of a more extensive and detailed kind. So is the world that we inhabit just simply a degree of collective projection year after year, day after day, that takes on such a story that it's even more thick than what's been created with Sherlock Holmes or Avatar or Star Wars or Trekkie, you know? The, or Star Trek. Did you hear? It's a matter of degree. And it's a matter of history. So if you start a new character like Harry Potter, it might take a thousand years or 500 years or a hundred years before children are raised in a Harry Potter world believing that not only does Harry Potter exist, but there absolutely is a world parallel to our own, of magical beings that be... Did you follow? Mm -hmm. Until it's absolutely real. No doubt about it. You couldn't... And they're not psychotic. They're not schizophrenic. They don't suffer from depression. Is this already happening? Mm -hmm. It's already happening. It's very fast today because of media, where people live in computer games, and we now understand that they never come out. 
they don't function anymore. That's real for them. That's the real world. They create money, they create relationships, they get married, and they inhabit that world. That's their major world, not this one. You know that's true, yes? It's the case, yes. Would it be helpful for the children to have these examples and to learn from them and extrapolate into this reality that, like, let's say, a innocuous uh, world of reality, maybe Harry Potter, so they can say, like, like they believe in Santa Claus, so when they stop believing on that, they can say, oh, and then maybe make them think about what they are. That would require that the parents have that that realization. It required the schools have that realization, and you'd have to actually bring it right through the whole schooling, and through parental. Uh, so this is a major undertaking. You know, in the United States today, there are whole movements in legislature forcing schools today, trying to get into law. Only one state has done it: Louisiana. Not only to have creationism taught in schools. But now, anti-climate, there's a movement to stop uh, teachers and that the parents tell their children to walk out of the class if the teacher teaches evolution or that there's climate change. And all kinds of states in the United States are trying to pass into legislation that this isn't a law, that the, that the teacher of science must teach creationism, must teach science as being, um, how to say it, equally valid as creationism or that there's no climate change. But Louisiana's gotten away with it, whereas other states, they keep getting those bills defeated. So you tell me when's this going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. But if your mind is so plastic that you can assume any of these worlds to be real and that we can say that we've done that to this world, how do we know that the Dharma teaching is the real world? It isn't. Or the one that we should aspire to? That you're going to have to intuit and develop confidence and there's only one way. Either, either you got it, and it's clear, or you have to build up enough evidence by, by evidence, that it's making your life better. And the people that are lost, say, in a video game, they could feel that their life is better? They could, but they may also be collecting evidence, and their friends may be saying, actually, your life is going to hell. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is why the actual teaching of not just Dharma, not Buddhism, of teaching of Dharma as a path of liberation, is not actually that common for beings because they'd rather live in fantasy. Because it's more often that people get supported to do that sort of thing. Like your friends are playing video games, your family thinks it's okay. Yeah, yep. we call that collective delusion. Yeah. But yeah, so, so why don't you get caught in a cult? So there's people that may say to you, you went to a retreat, aren't you sure it's a cult? Aren't you so sure it's not a cult? But you can also turn around and say, you sure that the Catholic, that the Catholic Church is not a cult? Oh, no, you can't say that. Why? Collectively, it's not a cult. But a sociologist, an anthropologist in many places would say, it's absolutely a cult. And I would say there's many Dharma groups and many people practicing Buddha, Dharma, Buddha, Buddhism, 
totally cultish all over United States uh, Europe I've met them cultish totally cultish is cultish another way of saying sectarianism sectarian blind belief uh, non-discrimination held together by rules and belief systems and imaginary stuff so what what do you hear me commonly saying or this lineage saying investigate and cut through all delusions all imaginations strip it bare so Dharma has never been reality Dharma is the finger pointing to the moon this is the difference to the moon not the moon itself the moon as as liberation you can't bring someone there only point to it so good Dharma is is succinct clear leading beings to the moon but they have to do it and they have to make their mind up whether it's working for them or not and then good Dharma teaches people to how to see the signs but make but know that that's real for them and keep cutting through fiction rules and rituals so what was so one of the things this is different than cult listen to the difference classically from the Buddha's time and taught for 2,500 years that one of the first fetters that drops upon the first experience of the transcendental of Lokutra or enlightenment is what feather fetter what what hindrance rules and rituals blind belief in rules and rituals that a rule a ritual any kind of activity can liberate nothing does but what one's own mind's awareness this is this is very different this is very very different is this particular teaching today like about looking at the worldview that we hold collectively as well as yes. individually yes so uh, I've spent a lot of time talking about individual view the beautiful thing about this particular illustration it's about collective karma forming a believable world and remember I kept saying earlier stop blaming it on you stop thinking I'm in illusion I'm a deluded being do you follow how, how mean and nasty it gets but now understand you were born into a world of beings imagining and creating fiction and you grow up in it and it's very hard to see out of it you see? so now what we need to do is take you and bring you into a world of fiction called Buddha Dharma that's a higher order fiction that just points closer to the moon leads to liberation as opposed to leads to more hell or gray or partial view do you see the difference? so people often say about Tantra especially people brought up in traditions of mindfulness all that tantric visualize it's all more make-believe I don't want more make-believe I don't want all this complicated stuff I've heard this by even teachers of, of that I don't want all that I don't want to get into Tibetan Buddhism or tantric that's just cultish kind of or or another worldview no 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 it's not it's a higher order map that's brilliantly constructed to give to bring one quickly out of it yeah. Okay, let's carry on. See how far we get. Actually, almost, almost done. We could finish this morning and go on to something this evening, or have the evening to to practice to get to practice.
Okay, let me let me say this again so it lands and goes deep and and uh, it's good sometimes. Traditionally, Dharma in ancient days was repeated three times for memorization purposes. Okay, so let me repeat this again. We may conclude that the real illusion is to think that our world is so very different from the fictional city of the Gandhara, of the Gandharas. Our world, like a fictional place, may be a collective projection too, even if it's one of a more extensive and detailed kind. So I'm putting in the commentary, it's just a matter of degree. Just a matter of degree, how deep the fiction goes. And I brought this, I brought this along here, National Geographic, to give you a description of fiction. Should, can I read this to you now? Maybe. Yeah, it's t- time to read this, just to give you an idea. So here's here's a January January, 2012 edition of of National Geographic, and I can turn almost anywhere. But here's an article called "Riding Out Another Season." Harsh isolation didn't didn't deter deter homesteaders from making a life along northern Montana's High Line, their tight-knit descendants show no less resolve. Opening picture, all kinds of people standing in front of a demolition car derby in Montana. Seems straightforward enough, isn't it? What did Montana look like before these beings came along? So here we have crash them up cars paint up the cars, crash them up, stand in front of them, look at them as they're being smashed up. What was there before? Grasslands. Or hills. or Right? Yeah. And other other beings, what were they called? Blackfoot, buffalo, different, Sioux. Right? Yeah. Ready for this? Beautiful photographs. Look at these horses. Can you see that? Horses riding through snow, right? Fence. I'm reading fiction. Two sorrels above belonging to Buster and Helen Brown have gone AWOL in the snow. Telling a story. Here's a lady standing in her barn. Yes? By the way, I'm not I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, watch what's happening now. This is a major magazine creating a fictional story of beings who've created a fictional story of beings who've created a fictional world. Follow? And someone's now giving a photographic expose to continue on the fictional story of a fictional world. What does the, what does the caption say? Helen Brown knows the complications of passing a ranch to the next generation. Proud mother of two rodeoing sons, she told them, quote, don't bring home any princesses, end of quote. Tough woman. Are you falling into it? Are you, are you buying into it? They did, but that's okay. Listen to this. The earnest saga of farming and ranching in northern Montana began with a misconception that verged on a lie. Free land, enough to feed your family. That's what the Congress spread the message to people who are back east. Free land, enough to feed your family. But the land wasn't quite free, and it was far from enough. A law had been passed by Congress back in 
1862, codifying the misconception as a national promise. In exchange for building a house on a chosen site, planting a crop, and maintaining five years of residence, you could, quote, prove up on 160 acres, which is about 70 hectares. I, I looked it up. Okay. That is, you would be granted a title. The offer applied to all unclaimed federal land. Now listen to this story. Watch, watch a whole universe, a world being created by one act of Congress. Beings having an idea, enacting a law, and watch what happens. That is, you would be granted a title. The offer applied to all unclaimed 1862, unclaimed? By who? By yeah. Unclaimed federal land, much of it west of the Mississippi River, including what we now call Montana. The northern third of the eventual state, stretching roughly 100 miles down from the Canadian border and westward as far as the front of the Rockies, comprised about 26 million acres of landscape mostly semi-arid plains, upholstered with short grass prairie and sagebrush. The government wanted those acres occupied by white settlers <coughs> whose presence would gradually erase the thought of land claims by Blackfeet, Grosventer, Sioux, Crow, and other native peoples. Then what happened? A railway got put in. For what? It, to make the consumers travel along that, and where do you build your homes? Near the railway. What gets built around the railway? Communities, towns, income. It sounds like Tibet. Yeah, just what they're doing, just what the Chinese are doing in Tibet, making it Chinese. Why? Put a railroad in, take the Tibetans and ship them out, put the Chinese in there, and eventually this is looks like China, is China. We've now erased the Tibetan people. This is called genocide. It's happening. So do you see what's happened? Does this, does this now sound like con collective karma, building a story, and now there's the map. We give you the map. It's cool, isn't it? I, think, I, I, I love studying this. Here's the pictures. Rodeo. Okay. Are the people in the picture thinking that they're living in a world of historic fiction. No, it's their life and they pass it on to their generation. Do they ever really think about how it all started? Somebody in Washington got, or a group of people got the idea, here's how to take care of the potential threat of the Indian claim to land. Let's go settle it right away. We did the same, Canadians did the same thing in, in the Arctic and I met a man who sat at the cabinet meeting with um, Louis Saint Laurent. Was actually in the cabinet with the Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent because he was in a hotel with me and he told me this is exactly what happened. Mark, he said to me, Mark, you want to know I was there for the decision. We sat around, we made a decision that the article become part of Canada. That meeting. And we all discussed how we're going to do it. We said, well, we have to make the Inuit Canadian citizens. We're going to give them a number. We're going to give them health care, give them free education. We're going to put more Mounties up there. We're going to put the military and so on. We're going to make it Canada within a few years because either Russia's going to get it or the United States is going to take it. 
He says, I was, the, I was at the cabinet meeting. He was like, at that time, he's 70 years old. He said, I was there. This is what all you're seeing now is a creation of our decision at a cabinet meeting. I love studying history. Isn't that something? Isn't that amazing? And I was living up there. A product of what? 20 people's mind. They built it. Look at that picture. Isn't that amazing? Do they refer to the Act of Congress of 1862? No way. They're all living the fiction. Right now. Can you sit here and feel the fiction? A collective fiction? Good. We're coming closer. Thank you. Holy, holy, holy text. I mean it. I enjoy reading National Geographic. It's a beautiful magazine. But you can see things in different ways. I think that's... Oh, let's finish today and then we can we can start on another... Not a little bit longer. A little bit of a long morning, but that gives you the evening to uh, um, contemplate. If we reject, if we reject the, the view of our world as a ready-made container that is the way it is, independent of what human beings think of it, and exists whether or not human beings exist, the apparent sharp distinction between fictional world and the real one loses its solidity. Fictional worlds are created as a collective effort based on some kind of text or narrative. The creation of a real world is collectively brought about based on the sensory information entering our minds. How the human being is sculpted sculpted. We're collectively very similar. We sculpt the experience very similar because we're built genetically in a very similar way. The creation of a real world of the real world is collectively brought about based on the sensory information entering our minds and is highly underdetermined by it. It is influenced and shaped by the specific structure of our perceptual and cognitive systems, as well as by our interests, beliefs, and conventions. It's a combination of genetic and environmental combinations that make up this world. And But what do we normally believe? I walk around on planet Earth. I walk around in Antigua. I walk around in Toronto. Yeah? But are you? What are you walking around in? This is contemplation for today. It is so powerful. Get it? And you're just going to have a different experience of life. Walking around in days. No. Okay, yeah, if you feel that. But Barry, if it becomes clear and unemotional, untainted, what are you walking around in? a projected reflection of historic genetic belief. Don't taint it. Don't taint it with any negativity. Just understand it and be free. Every time you look around, you talk to someone, it arises as what? A monumental fiction. Don't use the word fiction negatively. A monumental fiction created by common perceptual cognitive structures built by three and a half billion years of evolution through struggle, through evolution, through turmoil, 
through joy, through bliss, arising instantaneously as a reality. Let me let me because it's this is this is worthy. If we reject the view of our world as ready-made container, that is the way it is, independent of what human beings think of it, and exists whether or not human beings exist, the apparent sharp distinction between fictional world and the real world loses its solidity. It, and, and actually, I prefer yes, the word solidity, but let's, let's try a different word, and you're going to see how freeing this is. It's fixation. It loses its fixation. It loses its uh, obstruction. It loses its hurtfulness. It loses its fixity to have to be a certain way and feel things a certain way and be hurt and emotionally entangled in things that don't require or don't necessarily mean there's any entanglement at all. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Let's try this. You grew up in Montana, you grew up on a ranch. You've been born into Helen Brown's family. You get it into your idea as a, as a guy or a daughter. I like science. I'd actually rather, I want to be a scientist and work maybe at a university or maybe at, uh, in Arizona in a, at a telescope or go to Chile and work there but I don't really want to be uh, running the family farm. What do you think is going to happen? Could be a lot of pressure to what? Stay in our fiction. Keep building the fiction. Yes? Build the fiction. Or you might have a very supportive family going, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Except one of you remains behind. <laughs> Usually the second son, right? Traditionally the second son gets to go out. First son does what? You're staying, Buster. Any slight change in our perceptual and cognitive faculties in our interests, beliefs, and social agreements might result in a radically different world. I want you to write this down. This is a contemplation for today. Okay? Solidity, obstruction, belief based on what? Historical, collective karma. Number two. I didn't get the first one. Okay. So this is to do with this statement. Uh, uh, an apparently dis uh, uh, distinction between a fictional world and a real world loses the solidity if you understand that our world was was built by karmic belief and perceptual cognitive systems. Do you understand? Maybe too complicated. Not easy to okay. Um, simple. All that we experience as a world is built from collective stories, a collective fiction in combination with a very similar nervous system, almost identical genetically designed senses, 
combination built up over three and a half billion years. You might want to read back from the transcript. <laughs> but I, I don't. You don't even have to just just create it. So, you're uh, understand that you've been born into a collective story of hundreds of thousands of years. We now know about two two million, two and a half, three million years of human evolution. Stories, ideas, ways, and beliefs. Three and a half billion years of genetic biological evolution. Three and a half billion years. It's so real that it's so firm that it arises how quickly? It's done. like it never arose. It never arose for us, but yet it does. We have to slow down cognitively to see that without the story, without the monologue, with purifying the senses, purifying the mind behind it, one starts to see the gaps, in the, like in the matrix, mm-hmm. and one sees, oh my God, it arises in half a second, a quarter of a second, as a make-believe story of reality. It's not your fault. It's not your problem. It's simply how the organism had to survive. Stop beating yourself up. All your ideas, all your monologues are not yours. I really mean that. It's time for a big change. Western society beats itself up. Stop it. It's collective story making that you take on and that's not your fault. It's simply now your responsibility to shatter it, to break through. It's not your fault. Stop, 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 stop the the self-torturing, my psychological states, my beliefs, my owner stuff I need to discard. It's a collective myth of make-believe, a Hollywood myth that's so real and so firm. And we do it to our children. Children have amazing ideas. No, no, that's not real. Don't think like that, Henrietta. Who was given the name Henrietta in the last hundred years? Don't think like that, Henrietta. It's dangerous. I know parents do that. That's dangerous thinking. It's just a dream. It's dangerous thinking. Don't have those ideas. Hey, 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 hey. That's potentially wrong. Stay within the confines of the delusion. Certain cultures, what do they do to their children when they break out? They kill them. You know that, right? Mm. They kill them. You get married to the wrong person, we kill you. That's the threat. If you don't get married the way we determine, we kill you. If you go and try to get a job in the wrong place, we kill you. Or we give you so much guilt, you're going to live with that guilt for the rest of your life and you're going to need a lot of psychotherapy. Even second generation, third generation sometimes has guilt. Okay. Do you get the idea what to complain on? The arising, whenever you make a statement internally, Go deep. Every single statement is not your statement. It's collective karmic fiction. So you could look to where that collective karma comes from? No, don't don't do that. Just experience it as the arising of collective karmic fiction, not your fiction. When you look out at Lake Attilan, take that one quarter of a second to pause, and then it arises. Is it your 
vision of Lake Attila. Did you get the feeling how to contemplate? Make one step. Deck. Deck. Whose deck? Where did I get the idea of deck? Deck. Solid deck. Wooden deck. Nice home. Pretty brick wall. Do you, you fall? Like this. Days. Days of it. Days of it. I have done this. Days, 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 not a days. Not a days. Clear. Second by second, millisecond by hundreds, uh, half a second. Click, quick, 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 until you catch the fiction. Catch it, dissolve it, catch it, dissolve it, catch it, dissolve it, catch it, dissolve it. You keep doing that, what's going to happen? Eventually it's going to dissolve before your eyes. Just vanish. It'll just crash. Just like in the Matrix. You know how the Matrix crashes? You know how the computer software glitches? And it crashes. You can be standing outside, right? Remember they're standing outside on the street? And there's a glitch in the software? And it starts all dissolving around them. Same. You have the, people have the same experience in meditation. Right? Some of you have had this happen, yes? Yeah. You're looking out. You're sitting in a room. Dissolving before your eyes. Inner, outer, just dissolving like a silly putty. Because it's no longer held by the nervous system. The fiction. Okay? But you're fine, by the way. Don't think you're going to die. You don't die. Could we have a, uh, a window or a door open? Because I want to finish this section. Let's get some air in here. Yes. What comes about? Freedom. But you have to trust that. So your question about why should we trust this? Because the mentor, if you have the eyes to see, demonstrates that. As I said once to my beloved root teacher, Namdha Rinpoche, in a car one day I turned to him, I said to him, I want your mind. Why? Because I could feel the quality of infinite, open, expanse, freedom. I said to him many times, I want what you have. Not your personality. I want that mind. How do you get that? You see it. It's clear. Other people, what do they say? They meet a Hitler. They meet a Mussolini. They meet another deluded being, and they go, I want your mind. Don't they? All the time. We do this all the time. Anything. I want that mind. You're a murderer. I want that mind. You're a conniver. I want that mind. Tricksters. Con artists. Charismatic figures. Was Namjoon Rinpoche a charismatic figure? Anybody? Yeah? But why was he so private and why didn't he go public? So he could teach people personally and closely. Right? He knew the power of charisma, fantastically, but didn't use it on the public stage. Powerful, powerful force. Okay, so is that contemplation pretty clear? How to do that? Okay, next one. Next. Second one. You can write this down. Any slight change, any slight change in our perceptual 
and cognitive faculties in our interests, beliefs, I can read this to you again, and social agreements might result in a radically different world. Try that. Let's try it again. Any slight change in our perceptual and cognitive faculties, in our interests, beliefs, and social agreements might result in a radically different world, even if we assume an identical basis of perceptual data, even with the same genetic base. It only takes a slight alteration of interests and beliefs to shatter the world. Now, if it's pathological, schizophrenic, what does it do? It's very painful. This is how you know the difference. But if it's actually healthy, it, 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 you always know it leads to love and compassion and to non-clinging and unraveling of suffering for other beings. This is how you determine it. Okay? It's very easy. If the being becomes more loving, more compassionate, and truly more sp uh, free for others, then it's leading in the right direction. But if it becomes egocentric, special, contained, you get the idea, yes? It's off base. Even if they're a Tibetan Buddhist. Even if they're a Burmese Apostle Meditator. You know, whatever those titles are. right? Um, Zogchen Practitioner, Mahamudra Practitioner, Tantricist. It's gone off. And they're no better, as they say in the text, no better than the ordinary being. Why? Because they're deluded. Deluded. Even if their belief system is really different. Ever seen that look? Yeah. <laughs> they look out the corner of their eye at you like this. I know something that you don't. Crazy stuff. But yes. And by the way, it's sometimes even a normal thing to pass through where the world becomes very, very different until it becomes very, very normal. Beings of good attainment, even if they would be seeing a different world, can exist in this world perfectly seamlessly out of compassion and normalcy for the benefit of beings. Not to be special and to make it strange. However, out of compassion they may. That's different. So out of compassion to entice someone, my world is very special. And I'm going to wear a funny hat to show you. Right? And it's a very, very special world that I inhabit. Anything but this world. Come with me. That's compassion. That's if it's done with understanding and wisdom. Hmm? Then we're... Hmm? Why? Why? I don't know. Any slight change in our perceptual and cognitive faculties, in our interests, beliefs, and social agreements, might result in a radically different world. might result in a radically different world, even if we assume an identical basis of perceptual data, which means, which means even if we assume we're basically genetically the same and experience the world pretty similar through our senses. Okay? So those are two really good meditations. If you work with those today, uh, read it for a bit, try to understand it a bit, and then spend an hour 
going back and forth, looking at things. Even 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 reading a even reading a magazine, looking at it, and go, wow, story, story, movie, movie yoga, television yoga. I'm not saying even watch movies or television. I prefer you didn't, but just go like this. Look at somebody. You see? Well, I like that card. It's a great card. <gasps> what is it? It's a piece of paper with some writing on it. It's fiction. <gasps> I give. I should I give out these awards to certain people. You know, have them have, like a, have a stack of cards. Maybe we can make some cards. Oh, could you do that? If you could scan that in and make a bunch of cards this size and put my wallet. And when people do that kind of. <gasps> <laughs> I'll just go here. Have one. I don't even have to say anything anymore. Just here, have one. I get a whole bunch of cards like a cop, like citation cards. You know, like, oh wow, or oh my God, your attendant, he's so good. He's just like a miracle. He cooks such a great meal. He's so perfect. Here, have a card. <laughs> Actually, yesterday he was an evil monster. Today he's acting okay. But, or yesterday she was an evil, complete creep, but today they're actually functioning okay. Oh! Oh! Or, oh. You have a card that's just like a blank gray? Here, have a card, it's a blank gray. I actually don't need to say anything anymore. You want those like yogis that don't, don't speak anymore? They just, you know, there's people are. Here, have a card, have a card, have a card, have a card, have a card. Some will get a Dorje, you know? Some will get a little Bindu. Others get gray. Here, have a card. Here, have a card. Ah, no, that's me. No, 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 I don't want that card, any card. It's like people that go up, you know, they go up to the Lama at the end of Wonkur for the Yadam, and they go, oh, God, I, I hope it's White Tar. Oh, I hope it's Dorje. I hope, I hope, I hope. <laughs> one person, a male went up to Namjur Rinpoche once at the end of one card and said, I'd like a Yadam, please. And he says, yes, it's White Tara. And he goes around and people say, so what's your Yadam? He goes, White Tara. Oh, Rinpoche must have got it wrong. You're a male. <laughs> <laughs> He's still been living with that, you know. But it actually suits the being exactly. It's just, just beautiful, right? It's just it's exactly right on. You know, as many males uh, receive a Yadam of Dorji Palma. Right? This being Yudama's Dorji Palma, given from Namjur Rinpoche, suits this being very, very well. The aim of the city of Gandharas as an example of illusion is not so much to alert us to the error of mistaking a soft fictional world for a hard one, but to point out the error of believing that the real world we live in is any harder than a fictional one we see in the sky. Isn't that cool? Is it getting a little closer to, to actually understanding how this works? Yeah. Okay, very close. It is, it is interesting to consider what kind of being the Gandhara actually is. The Buddhist texts are very explicit in saying that there is no soul, no indestructible essence of a person moving from this life through the intermediate state to the next life. What does that say? There is no rebirth. 
you don't get reborn. Isn't that clear? Let's try it again. Buddhist texts say very clearly, there's no soul, no indestructible essence of a person moving from this life through the intermediate state, the next life. The Sali Stamba Sutra even claims that there is nothing whatsoever that transmigrates from this world to another world. There is no rebirth for you. Tarshan told me a wonder, or someone told me a wonderful story. Tarshan told me a wonderful story. We, was that the Dharma Center once? You know, in front of a whole bunch of Buddhists, Buddhist students. And um, he was just, you know, giving some teaching and said, There is no rebirth. There's no reincarnation. There's no rebirth. He says, It's just marvelous to watch the, draws, the, the, the jaws drop. What? There's no rebirth. You don't get reborn. Nothing gets reborn. A metaphorical illustration sometimes found in literature attempting to show how a person, a Gandhara, or any, any other being, can be reborn. Wait a minute, I just said there was no rebirth. How does this happen? Watch. Do you know how a dye maker makes a dye? Actually, you had, uh, you had one. Natalie, did you get your little piece of, was it your little plastic? The little plastic thing that I brought? We have to bring it. Okay. Is the bell the same as the casting? No. Where did it come from? The casting. Is it the same or different than the casting? It's different, but it has the same imprint. See the inside? It has an imprint, yes? That imprint is almost identical to the casting imprint, and yet it's not the same. What traveled? What traveled was an imprint, not an it, but an imprint. Information got tra- got got transmitted, so not you, no, not something as real as a fiction. The fiction got transla- got got tra- got trans- transferred and because the in- the fiction is infinite in dimension and scope and inherently empty. There's no rebirth. Is there apparently rebirth for those that are deluded? Yes. But if not diluted, there's no rebirth. Just moving through fictions. Like today, just move through the fiction. But no real fiction. Imprints, 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 like a die. Almost almost done here this morning. To see why this makes sense, consider that what underlies our entire waking life is a constant internal monologue of thoughts. You know this now, yes? For most people, pretty constant monologue of thoughts. And what are those are those thoughts innocent? Not at all. What are the thoughts all about? Me and my worldview, yes? And maintaining me and my worldview. And if the thoughts turn nasty, what is it about? My world doesn't, my, my me doesn't fit with my worldview. It hurts. Worldview from them hurt my internal world about me. Or my internal world is not comfortable about parts of my world that I have a belief about. Does that? Okay. 
This monologue creates herself as the writings of Conan Doyle create Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Where does the Dr. Watson, Sherlock Holmes come from? The internal monologue of who? Conan Doyle. If our consciousness continues after death, the monologue presumably continues as well. You don't continue. The monologue of imprints of lifetimes continues. So as the Tibetan yogis often say, if you want to know where you've been in a past life, it's easy. What you are right now. What you are right now is a large part of the imprints of lifetimes. So when a, when a lama looks at you, do they have to read all your past lives? No. What you are right now is the imprint. Simple. If you're interested in Dharma and you've been practicing Dharma and that's really a major part of your life, guess what? It's a major part of the imprint from before. Not you before, but imprints, stories and monologues from before. And there's a lot of monologues. If our consciousness continues after death, the monologue presumably continues as well, thereby creating the fictional character of the Gandhara, an intermediate being of a similar character as a self we assume to have while dreaming. And that's one of the important qualities of dream yoga practice, is if you can wake up in the dream and you can see it and go, this is a dreaming mind. Not just this is a dream. This is the dreaming mind creating a story you have a very good chance of waking up in the bardo in the intermediate uh, state and waking up in the bardo and becoming liberated. Why? Because you can recognize the dreaming mind creating the fiction of rebirth, the fiction of having to be somewhere as an actor. Make sense? Why we practice waking up in the dream, being aware in the dream and going, this is a creation of mind. This is a story. This is, this is why we practice. This is why I want you to practice it during the day today. I'm in a story. It's not my story, but I bought into the story. Let's see if we can crack through it. Then you'll have a much better opportunity while dreaming to go just like this. That's a pretty good dream. I think I'll alter it. Or it's finished. Excellent. Time to wake up. That that, that clarity. That clarity, even being in a Dharma talk in a dream, right? Listening to a Dharma talk, being aware one is in a Dharma talk, that one's dreaming, but it's a beautiful Dharma talk. Thank you for the instructions. Thank you for the gifts and the blessings. I'll wake up now. A contemporary writer who defends this view of the self as a fictional character is a philosopher and cognitive scientist, Daniel Dennett. According to his account... The best way of understanding our internal monologue is not in terms of an author producing a piece of text. I'll read that again. According to his account, Daniel Dennett, the best way of understanding our internal monologue is not in terms of another, of an author pr- producing a piece of text, but of a text bringing about a fictional character which happens to be the author. This is Daniel Dennett, who's a scientist, going, it works the opposite. 
the monologue texts actually produce the experience of self, the author, not the author doesn't do the writing. Cool, isn't it? This is also the Buddha's view. This would be traditional yogic view. The monologues create the author, not the author create the monologues. You've heard authors say they have a mentor when they're writing and they don't seem to think it's coming from them. It's not coming from them. It's coming from their depth. This is because they can't experience their depth as uh, as a known entity. It's mysteriously being channeled into them. But once you cross that threshold, there's no separation between depth and surface. It's just the beauty of all different levels communicating. But for a lot of people, the so-called unconscious or the depth levels are very hidden and feel like it comes from another being. But it's not true. There's no separation. I often write books. I mean, the, the first book I ever wrote, uh, not, not university papers, but, but the first book, Why Meditate, came in a dream. And it got written in four hours. That was it. Hardly, edit, hardly edit, any editorial changes after that. Complete. Who wrote it? Did I write it? But I don't go around saying I channeled it. You know? You know, dream material channeled from another realm. No, space. But I know that's not separate from my consciousness. Did you see the follow? It's accessible. So once you know it's accessible, it's always available. Some days better than others. Oh, that teacher gave me direct instructions in my dream last night. Yes, in fact. Them or me? Doesn't matter to me. It's called guru mind. Doesn't matter. I couldn't care less. Is it my nervous system acting from my uh, a little bit from my hippocampus, frontal lobes, and other areas? I don't care. Guess what? It's all available. Why would I separate off and say uh, that's that's not me? It's a voice from somewhere else. It's neither me nor not me. Because there is no me. No real me. Right? There's voices. There's narrative stories. If it's a good narrative story, don't listen to it. Okay. Dennett observes that our tales, quote, Dennett observed, quote, our tales are spun, but for the most part, we don't spin them. They spin us. So that that's worth contemplating. You write that, eh? That's that's a that's a beautiful one. That's worth that's worthy of contemplation for the Western mind. You know, so this is good from a Western um, philosopher and scientist. Beautiful. Our tales are spun, but for the most part, we don't spin them. They spin us. Do you want me to read that again, one more time? Our tales are spun, comma, but for the most part, we don't spin them, <coughs> semicolon, they spin us. And what do they spin us into? A fictional world of beliefs and ideas that feel very, very real and often create a lot of suffering, both by bliss and by, by hurt. Yes. So where would be the point at which they don't spin us? Non-clinging, undifferentiated, natural awareness. No story-making. Non-conceptual, no story-making. No spinning. (coughs) All things are possible. All stories are possible. 
and no stories at all. It's called the Dharma. It's called the Dharmakaya. The tales are spun, but for the most part, we don't spin them; they spin us. So the tales that we do spin are fictions, creating us, creating us, but in a better way than in a non-suffering. If you have better fiction that leading to liberation, then it's good. It's healthy. Eventually, you come to what's called the Dharmakaya, the natural state of abiding mind as it naturally is, that, that, that is free of all fictional creations. That's called coming home. That's called coming back to the mother light. The sun, it's, called, it's known traditionally as the sunlight coming back home to the mother light. The mother light creates all fictions. You have to find the source, like the light bulb in the movie theater. Go find the light bulb in the movie theater, the source by which all is illumined. It has no stories. But you know why? Because in the movie theater, you can put any cassette, any hard disk, any film in there, and with that light, it's going to produce any story. Once you know that, there's freedom. And then you need to gain confidence in that. But once you can dwell in the light, anything's possible, but you can always then uh, come back and experience the light of undifferentiated uh, clarity. Does, does that make sense? It's really that straightforward. Just trace the movie theater experience back to how the projector works. It's the light bulb gives off white light, which projects all manifestation. There's nothing wrong with the manifestation as long as you know that the light bulb, the source, is undifferentiated, natural, non-conceptual mind, free of all suffering, bliss and not bliss. It's not a bliss or not bliss. The human consciousness and our narrative selfhood is the product, not their source. For him, for Daniel Dennett, there is no fundamental difference between selves and fictional characters, apart from the fact that selves are more open-ended. One's autobiographic monologue goes on, but most pieces of fiction have a clearly defined beginning and an end. We do too. Sorry, disagree. We have a clearly defined beginning. It's called birth and death. It's a fiction. And death is a fiction, and birth is a fiction. Just a fiction. As As some lamas say, Some yogis say, just like putting on new clothes. But of course, if we we think that the Ganvara is an illusion because it is merely a fictional character, our reasoning will equally apply to the self that produced it and to its next rebirth. I suggested earlier that the greater delusion might not be to see a fictional city in the clouds, but to think that the cities of the world are fundamentally different from fictional cities. Go, and next week, not for the people that live in Panachal or live in the area, but for those that don't live in the area, a visit to Panachal will be good. Walk around the city of fiction. You just need sometimes a bit of a bigger fiction to jolt you out of the fact that you're in a fiction all the time. In the same way, greater illusion, in the same way, a greater illusion than the Navara is not realizing he is a being in the intermediate state might be that it does not occur to us that ourselves are as illusory as the one the Gadvara thinks it has. In other words, a greater illusion is actually believing that you're in some state when it's just 
a fictional palace in the clouds. This is insight. This is completion yoga. Strip it bare, and there's freedom underneath. Don't keep looking for fantasy. Strip it bare and see how all things arise. Where are the sources? Where the source? You can catch it. All of you can do it. All of you can do it. Little little discrepancies in the matrix. Little black cat walking across when it, there should be no cat, or the black cat's walking four feet four feet along the sidewalk. Oh oh, glitch in the software. We get glitches, but we ignore them and we explain the way. If this cup was to float four inches above the surface of the of the table there, you would just probably say, oh. Not seeing very well this morning. Glitch in the software. Ever had that happen to you? Where something's floating or something isn't appears where it is. The the uh, the watermelon out there is actually over on the step, or it's in space. And you go, look around. Oh, okay, Whew. wasn't in this. It wasn't floating in space. It's actually on the table, but I couldn't see the table. Has it happened to you? Those are the glitches you want to see all day long. Why? It's just built, built up, built up perception. Okay. Is that got enough to work with today? So no, nothing tonight. No, no. Uh, yeah, lots for you tonight. Uh, for me too. And um, carry on. Just, just do it day and night, day and night, day and night. Dreams, between dreams, all the time. Get it so it's actually beginning to appear for you. But don't create it. Don't create it, just look. Don't imagine it, just look. Just look. Just look. Drop drop all the texts, read it, study it, get it in there, and drop it for a couple hours or an hour. And just look. 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 Okay? That's contemplation. This is the way we do it. And uh, nobody today have got to go back for a, a lunch with some, some friends. And see you tomorrow morning um, at the usual time and the usual place, apparently. Idante punikamang asawaki wang ho tu, idante punikamang asawaki wang ho tu, idante punikamang asawaki wang ho tu. May all beings be happy and healthy, and may all beings be established in a continuum of freedom, unbroken. Perfect unity of wisdom and compassion. Thank you very much. It's, it's lovely. Lovely to be able to share this with you and be able to have a text that I can actually work off so clearly and with such rich uh, material. So it's, it's, it's great. This is, I'm really, really enjoying unfolding this. This is, this is glorious. And deeper for me, too. You know? It's great. Every time I teach, it's uh, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. This is